Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, today we're going to move into the realm of kind of bringing things back together, uh, bringing in a lot of the ideas we've talked about in the past and kind of talking a little bit about how these things work together as a coherent whole. Um, one of the things that I've been doing this semester, with this season, I should say, is I've been treating it the way you would treat the first year of college. You know, most of this has been uh, introductory. Most of this has been just sort of briefly getting you into these topics. Uh, and that's the way college usually works. You don't jump into the, you know serious fourth-year in-depth study of a particular topic um, because you're not going to get very far. You don't have a basis. You know, the introductions build your basics up. Um, this is one of the things we talked about with research strategies, and we'll come back to that. But research strategies, basically, you start with general ideas, and then you move to more and more specific. So I'm going to try to do that with this course. I'm going to try to move from this season being very much introducing a lot of different ideas and then the future seasons being much more about getting more specific, getting more in-depth analysis, doing more application. But with this episode, I wanted to start kind of edging you towards some of that application and start bringing some of these ideas together. So I want to talk about logic and logical fallacies. I want to talk about uh, research strategy. I want to talk about literary criticism and sort of how you apply all of these things together to do analysis. <clears throat> Unfortunately, today, most of the analysis that we have would hardly qualify as analysis. It's very much a superficial uh, back and forth of uh, you know, what are referred to often as talking points, where each side sort of has their phrases or their words that they know will energize their side. Uh, the problem with this is you never get below the surface, and you never get to a point where, since you never go below the surface, there can never be a resolution between the two sides, because the two sides have clung to their ideas, um, you know, as if death uh, were to follow if they let go of their idea or altered their idea. And so they never get into any real analysis. And part of what I want to do with these um, these lectures and these seasons is to kind of get you out of that habit, to get you more into the habit of, you know, looking at things, um, examining things, looking at, looking at them from different perspectives, you know, we were all raised in whatever particular culture we came from. And we very much see that as, well, that's just the way things are. But we don't live in a world where each perspective is isolated. Uh, we don't live in a world where everyone we will encounter and everything that has an effect on our life was taught the same things that we were. We live in a world that is a global world. Whether people like that or fear that, is irrelevant because you can't deny that what happens on one side of the planet has effects on the other side of the planet. Um, the current COVID is a perfect example of this. This started out of a single area and now is spread over the entire planet. And so the entire planet has to deal with this issue and try to find ways to work together on this issue. Otherwise, it doesn't get solved. And so because of commerce, because of travel, because of, you know, 
politics, uh, we don't live in those isolated little communities anymore where we don't have to care what everyone else is doing. We don't have to understand them because what they do affects us and what we do affects them. So we need to start having the more of the ability to look at things um, in, in a, you know, a deeper way, but also look at them in a way that doesn't cause us to immediately retreat in fear. You know, one of the things that a superficial analysis will always do is it will encourage you to retreat into fear or become defensive as soon as you come across an idea that you don't understand or that challenges something you do believe. So <clears throat> with this episode, I want to kind of bring together some of these things. And I'm going to start with logical fallacies because they're the way we do things and they're the way we shouldn't do things. Remember, logical fallacies, when we talked about them, are basically ways of manipulating. They either manipulate you emotionally or they manipulate the way your mind works and kind of slip things past you. You know, examples of any emotional uh, manipulation would be if I start flattering you because I want to get you to believe an idea. So I say, wow, you're really smart. You know, you're nobody's fool and everybody knows that, you know, you can't be fooled. You're not an idiot. You're, you're, you're really bright. And so, of course, you believe that, you know, B is the right answer to this question. Um, what I've done is I've built you up. I've made you feel good about yourself. And then I sold you an idea that I never gave you any merits for. I just said, you're smart. I made you feel good. And therefore connected feeling good to this idea. Now, is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? You have no way of judging that because I didn't give you any real information. Uh, the other thing that logical fallacies often do is they manipulate the way the brain works. Uh, for example, if I convince you that in the either-or fallacy, that there's only two possible answers, that it has to be this or this, um, this is... Uh, usually brought about where I have two possible solutions to something and I tell you all of the reasons why it can't possibly be the first solution. I pick every single thing apart about that solution. Therefore, it must be the second solution. Well, this is an oversimplification fallacy. Uh, just because I disproved the one side, it does not mean I've proven the other because the answer could be a third option, a fourth option. It could be a combination of the two, or it could be things that we haven't even thought of yet. <clears throat> so this slipping things by because of the way that the mind works uh, is, is one of the ways that fallacies get things past you. Another one is the faulty cause and effect, sort of the idea that because event A happens and then event B happens, well, obviously event A caused event B. And we talked about this when we talked about fallacies. This is the way your brain is hardwired to work. You're hardwired to see things in cause and effect. This is the only way you can learn. If you see you do certain things, you get a certain outcome. You learn that that's the steps to get that outcome. But in a faulty cause and effect, I haven't given you the, any of the steps in between. You know, I've just said this happens, then this happens, therefore the one caused the other. Um, the obvious way to show that this is foolishness is if I drop a box of Kleenex 
and there's an earthquake on the other side of the planet 30 seconds later, uh, you wouldn't believe that my dropping the box of Kleenex caused the earthquake on the other side of the planet. Um, just because the one event happened 30 seconds prior to the other, I'd have to go a long way to prove that that one thing actually led to the other. Now, maybe it did in some strange connected universe, and that was actually the case, but just to say that the one happened first and then the second happened doesn't give you any reason you should believe it. So these fallacies are used all the time. They're used in advertising. <clears throat> you know, eat at McDonald's. Uh, why, do, why should we eat at McDonald's? Well, look at the commercials. Everyone in the commercials happy, healthy, and has lots of friends. So if you eat at McDonald's, you're going to be happy, healthy, and have lots of friends. Um, you know, this is, this is a faulty cause and effect. Uh, this is something that is manipulating the way your brain works. Now, with logical fallacies, if they become ridiculous, they're usually easy to see. Or, if we disagree with them, they tend to be easy to see. You know, we can easily pick out when someone else is using a logical fallacy. Um, because we don't want to believe what they're saying, so we'll shoot holes in it and say, this doesn't prove anything. The places that fallacies usually trip you up is when it comes to an idea you do want to believe. You know, if you do want to believe that object or that, you know, action A caused action B and you want that to be the truth, you're not going to be very skeptical. You're not going to take any time to analyze that. You're going to tend to just want to accept it. So one of the things that I've always told my students is when it comes to looking up information to support what you want to say, you're always going to be critical of things you disagree with. And you need to be twice as critical of anything you agree with. If if something just says, yeah, I want to believe that, or yeah, that that's that's it, you know, then you need to stop and backtrack and say, okay, do I want to believe this because I like the idea, or do I want to believe this because I've actually been handed some kind of proof? So logical fallacies, again, are how we're often taught to buy products, to vote for particular people or not vote for particular people. Um, there's also scare words. One of the reasons I did that podcast on scary words was because people will often associate, you know, socialism, communism, and anarchism uh, with things they want you to be afraid of. And if you don't really have a good grasp of what those words mean, if they're just scary words, uh, you're going to tend to run away from whatever that idea is. But when you, you know, backtrack and start looking at, well, what do these words actually mean? Um, and, you know, you, you start to do a little research, you start to do a little looking into them, um, you, you tend to say, oh, okay, well, yeah, I don't agree with some of these parts of it, but yeah, this part over here seems like it might work pretty well. You know, you start to realize that there are very few ideas that are all good or all bad. They, they have a little bit of both in them usually. Uh, and so if you're going to really dive into these um, and you figure out that all ideas have good and bad parts and you're honest about what those good and bad parts are, you can say, well, what can we do to minimize those bad parts or eliminate those? And what can we do to get, sort of get the maximum benefits out of the good parts? Um, and this is a much deeper way of analysis rather than just being afraid or being happy and either running away or running towards something. 
Now logic, regular logic, which is what should be used when you're trying to convince people uh, of something on, or when you're trying to figure out something for yourself, we talked about usually falls under two types, deductive logic and inductive logic. Now deductive logic is much more mathematical logic. You know, we talked about 2 plus 2 equals 4. This is a deductive argument because we know what the word 2 means, we know what the word plus means, we know what the word equals means, and we know what the word 4 means. And as long as those words are applied correctly, the answer has to be true. So 2 plus 2 has to be 4. It can't be 5, it can't be 23, unless we use a different logical system we put them in. But under the basic system of arithmetic, the way we've decided this logical system, uh, everyone who does 2 plus 2 must come up with 4. So logic uh, of, of the deductive sort often leads to certainty. You start with um, general principles, and then you apply specific examples of that uh, within a proper formula, and you get an answer that's acceptable. Uh, you get an answer that has to be taken as correct. Now the problem is the world generally becomes too complicated for simple deductive logic, and deductive logic doesn't do a very good job with completely solving problems like who should you marry? Should you marry at all? Um, you know, what, what career should you go into? Uh, things like this are not things that are solvable. Uh, which economic system is going to work best for us at the present. Yes, there will be elements of the argument that will be deductive, where you may use statistics or math or things like that, but you also have to um, have something else to convince you. Uh, and the other logic that we're left with to solve most things is what's known as inductive logic. Now the problem with inductive logic is that it doesn't give you certainty like deductive logic. Um, <clears throat> you may have one side that has you know, hundreds of true premises and says therefore A is the answer. And the other side also has hundreds of true premises and says therefore B is the answer. Well if they've both been giving you true statements all the way through but they came up with different answers, it's probably because they're true statements were focusing on different areas. Now this doesn't mean that all inductive log logical arguments are equal. Uh, you will have better deductive logical arguments than others. Better deductive logical arguments are closer to explaining the way things are. Um, when you can um, show with a high degree of probability that something is true, you have a much better inductive argument than if you can't, that if you only give a few vague possibilities of why this is true, uh, but you leave open a lot of things. Now this is where, you know, disagreements come in with inductive logic, because you can have two sides using good logic and still coming up with different answers. And this is part of the reason that you have to engage in more meaningful uh, debates, more meaningful dialogues, because as you're bringing up your arguments, they're bringing up other arguments that you may not have thought of, and vice versa. 
And so what's happening with this deductive process back and forth is that while you still may not completely agree at the end, you're both digging deeper through this problem than you would have if you would have stayed with the surface arguments and just gone back and forth. <clears throat> now, how does all of this go into research strategies? Well, when you're researching something, you're trying to build your knowledge of it from the ground up. And we talked about this in the um, research strategies uh, lecture. You're, you start out with general knowledge first, because if you go to the more technical things, you're just going to be overwhelmed and not know what they're talking about. Again, this series of lectures is done sort of with that research strategy uh, system in mind. That's why I start out with more general lectures and then I will move into more specific technical things in later seasons. Uh, because if I start out with the technical things too early, you're just going to shut down and not going to get much out of it. So you always have to build your idea from the ground up. And this is one of the reasons that professors have you do research papers. You actually learn a lot more writing a research paper than you do any other way. You know, if I just give you, you know, these are the cycles of revolution in the French Revolution, remember these cycles. You, you might remember the cycles and you might be able to talk a little bit about them, but you didn't really get much of a deep understanding. But if I say, okay, write a research paper about this, and I want you to explain what the cycles are and give some of the reasons of why these things may have occurred this way. Well, now you've gotten much deeper into the topic because now you've got to do historical research. You've got to do research about French culture. You've got to learn about the French class system. You've got to learn about the economics of the time. And then you start getting into ideas like you know, mob mentality. This is one of the reasons that it kind of gets out of control is because instead of, you know, having any kind of uh, rational guide, it becomes more and more radical and wild as it goes. And this is what tends to happen with mob mentality, with herd mentality. You know, one uh, animal getting scared is just going to run away a little bit. But if you scare a lot of animals, you end up with a stampede and a stampede that gets out of control because they feed emotionally off of each other. And so you can kind of see just from this little bit of discussion that I've done how, as opposed to just knowing what the cycles are, uh, now you're getting you know, historical information, cultural information, class information, psychological information, and you're seeing how all of these things work together. You know, and this is where a lot of the literary criticism comes into the picture. You know, when I teach you the, the courses on, or the sections on literary criticism, these are ways of looking at things from different perspectives. You know, you already have the perspective you were raised with. You already have the perspective of, you know, your culture, your religion, your uh, society, you know, your family, your religious beliefs, these ways of anal analyzing things have you step back from that. It doesn't say what you have is wrong, but if you ever want to understand the way other people see things, the, the way other people, you know, view the world and why they do what they do, 
you have to start learning how to step out of your own perspective. You know, I'm a white male, but if I ever want to understand uh, anything in, in any depth about the world, I kind of need to understand about other people who are not like me. I need to understand, you know, what are what are the perspectives of of women? What are the perspectives of people of different races? What are the people of, you know, the perspectives of people of different religions, different sexual orientations? You know, all of these things don't mean that I have to abandon what I am. I, it means I get a bigger picture of the world. And when I get that bigger picture of the world, you start to be able to not only understand why other people think and feel the way they do, you, you start to get to the point where you can actually build bridges and have meaningful dialogue. Because if you don't understand anything about someone else and they don't understand anything about you, your dialogue is not going to go very far. Because you're both going to be so entrenched in your ideas that you're never going to be able to see anything from a different perspective. So, you know, as you're kind of going through these and as you apply these different literary criticisms to works or to philosophies, you know, start thinking beyond just what is on the page. So, for example, if you were doing a, you know, a feminist criticism of The Awakening, which we did a little bit of, you know, you, you kind of have to understand a little bit about psychology. You kind of have to understand a little bit about that historical time period. You know, what were the expectations of that culture? And in her case, with Edna, her two contrasting cultures, because she comes from one culture and she's thrown into another one when she gets married. And so it kind of forces you to do research, forces you to find out about these things. And again, as you're doing this, you're getting a bigger picture of it. You know, it starts to go from a story of, I don't know why the lady went out and drowned herself at the end of the book, to, yeah, she probably didn't feel like she had any options, that this was, her life was going to just keep getting worse and worse, and there was no real solution because there was no real way out in that time period. And, and she felt like if she had no hope of anything better, this is all she could hope for. And this was the only way that she could sort of, you know, take charge and say, you know what, the world won't let me live like I want to live, so I'm going out on my own terms. So you start to get different uh, perspectives, you start to get different ideas, and this is one of the reasons that I've always thought you can't separate all of these disciplines as much as they like to. You know, when I studied in college, I took a lot of history, and I studied a lot of history outside of the classroom, too. Why? Because it it told me more things about the time periods where the poems and the novels and, you know, things like that were being written. So I had a better understanding of well, what were the conditions, what was the culture like, what was the economics like, what was the, you know, class system like. Um, and the same thing with philosophy. You know, when you look at philosophy, one of the things that you often see as you go back in time with the different philosophers, as you start to realize they have particular blind spots. And why do they have these blind spots? Well, if you know more about their time period, about their culture, and about the ideas they were exposed to, uh, the literary writers they were reading, the 
historical events that were going on, a lot of these things will make a lot more sense. You know, one of the misconceptions that people have is that people way back in the old days had all the answers and they knew everything. No, they they were very smart. I'm, I'm not, you know, cutting them down, but we have perspectives that they could never dream of. Um, you know, in the 1400s, for someone to have access to 20, 30 books, I mean, especially if they own those books, this person would have to be extremely wealthy. You know, you're talking upper, upper class to even be educated, but let alone to own books. You know, look at how cheaply you can buy books now. I know the prices have gone up, but you don't have to be a millionaire or a billionaire to own 20 or 30 books. You know, they're, they're reasonably enough price that you can buy them. And we have libraries, we have internets, we, you know, the, the internet sources, we have databases, we have all of these things that they never dreamed of. And we have additional perspective of historical events. You know, the people who wrote the Constitution didn't really know a lot about computers and airplanes and, uh, you know, nuclear weapons and things like that because none of that stuff existed. Uh, none of that stuff was able to be on their horizon that they could put into these ideas. Um, they also didn't have access to any of the political and economic thinkers and uh, philosophical thinkers who came after them. You know, they would have only been able to read a limited amount of those who came either at their time period or before that. So we sort of have the accumulation of knowledge over history. And this is how science accumulates. You know, one person uh, doesn't, off the top of his head, invent everything about a modern airplane. This person is building off of all of the different stages that airplanes have gone through. Um, all of the different, you know, breakthroughs, all of the different technological advances. And then they put this stuff together to make something that is, you know, more efficient or faster or... Uh, safer or whatever it is that's their goal, able to carry more cargo. So as you start getting into ideas, you know, always keep in mind to keep your mind open um, and, and look from different perspectives. You know, if you're trying to figure out a, a philosophical idea or a, you know, a story or uh, a historical time period or how other people in the world live, you know, you have to be able to start looking at it from different angles and not angles that sort of say, well, I, you know, me and my culture, we know everything. And let's let's see what these people who don't know everything um, are thinking. No, that's absolutely not the way to go about it, because every culture has blind spots. Every culture has moments of genius um, that, uh, you know, put them ahead of other cultures. So when you can kind of be more neutral and look at them from different perspectives and look at your own culture from different perspectives, you know, people tend to uh, idealize the way they were raised. Oh, this was, you know, this is the way everybody should be. This is common sense. There's no such thing as common sense. Common sense was the way you were raised to think things should be. Uh, that's all it is. Um, you know, aside from basic things that everybody would know, like, you know, don't stick your hand in an alligator's mouth because they'll bite you. Uh, 
most of the things that people think of as common sense are more culturally based. It's common sense because your culture says this is common sense. It's common sense because this is the way you saw everyone doing these things. So as we go through these future lectures, uh, I do want to keep bringing things in from different angles and different perspectives. And as we go through these things and go into future seasons of this, we are going to start sort of slowing down a little bit and getting into more depth, getting into more detail. But I don't want to do that too early because that will end up basically, you know, sending people running. And I, and I want this to be something where people build their knowledge at their own pace. That's why these lectures aren't going anywhere. I don't take them down after a certain amount of time and I don't charge people for them. You know, if you feel you need to go back and re-listen to an episode, go back and re-listen to it. Uh, that's why I put them in this format that I have. Um, because I think information works better when you can go back to it several times and when you can go back with different sets of eyes. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. You know, sometimes I might read a poem that absolutely just sort of speaks to me at the moment and I can really relate to it. <clears throat> and then other times I might read it and I'm coming from a different place and it might not seem that important or might not seem that relevant to where I am. Uh, and then other times the opposite happens. I read something that doesn't really strike me as relevant in my life and then I see something or experience something and then read it again and I'm like wow this was this was something that you know I couldn't get back then but I do understand now so as we go forward um, you know go forward bravely and uh, keep keep your mind open keep looking at different perspectives and keep challenging the things you see the things you think um, don't ever take anyone as being 100% having all of the answers. I don't want you to think that I feel I 100% have all of the answers because I don't. The more you learn about things, the more you realize there's so much more to know. Uh, that's one of the things that always drew me to philosophy and literature and, you know, and political theory and things like that is that these aren't fields that are easily exhaustible. It's not like, well, I learned all of it and now there's nothing else to know and I can move on with my life. You know, an intelligent person will always know there's so much more to learn. And it's kind of like, you know, going off into space. Uh, you may go 100, 200, 300, 400 miles into space and think, well, you know, that's, that's what the rest of it's like, so I guess I'm done. No, if you actually went off into space and as you exit, you know, our solar system and exit the galaxy and I, you would start to see more and more different things all of the time. And there's not an end of what there is to explore. You know, you'll start to see similar things, similar traits, but you'll also see things that are new. Uh, and always keep in mind that this is like being a, being an explorer when you get into philosophy, when you get into literature, when you get into political theory. Um, always look at it with that eyes of an explorer. You know, look to things that can tell you things you don't know, to perspectives you may not have thought of. Okay, 
I'm going to break off for tonight, uh, and I hope all of you are doing well. I hope all of you are staying safe. Have a good night.